Welcome to Disciple Dojo. If you saw our video back over Christmas about the genealogy of Jesus in the beginning of Matthew, you saw me mention a book, All the Genealogies of the Bible. This is a very new resource. It just came out a few months ago from Zondervan Academic. This is a fantastic resource. And I reached out to the author and asked if she would like to come and talk about it because the concept of genealogies is something that gets some people either really excited or immediately makes them lose interest. And the Bible has a lot of genealogies in it. So I wanted to sit down and talk to someone who has spent 20 years of her life studying biblical genealogies and putting together what is the only resource of its kind out there in biblical studies. So Nancy Dawson is our guest today. We had a great conversation all about biblical genealogies, why they matter, why they're important, what's going on with Jesus's genealogy, what seems to be two different genealogies, one between Luke and one in Matthew, some of the Old Testament genealogies. It was just, it was a great conversation. And Nancy's work is very crucial because as you'll hear in the discussion, she has a very unique background that makes her perfectly suited for this type of work that others of us, like myself, would really struggle if we had to figure it out on our own. So I'm super thankful for Nancy for coming on and talking to us, and I hope you enjoyed this discussion all about biblical genealogies. If you do enjoy it, one of the ways you can show us that you enjoy it is by subscribing to this channel if you haven't already and clicking the notifications icon so that you know when new Disciple Dojo content is coming. We have stuff coming up that you want to know about. And the only way you'll know about it is by enabling those notifications rather than just trusting the random algorithm to pop it up on your screen whenever you open YouTube. And doing that also lets YouTube know that you appreciate this channel and that incentivizes them to want to let more people know about Disciple Dojo. And it bumps us up a little bit in the algorithm. So just a quick, easy way that you can support this channel and help us continue to have more great discussions like this one. So put all your preconceptions of genealogies and how boring they are aside and let my friend Nancy Dawson convince you otherwise. So we are here with Nancy Dawson, and Nancy is the author of this giant book, like giant in a good way, because it's thick and it's meaty, and it's all the genealogies of the Bible, visual charts and exegetical commentary. And genealogies make a lot of people's eyes cross. They make a lot of people, you know, if they have trouble falling asleep, they just open those first chapters of Chronicles and start reading. But... Nancy dove headfirst and has written basically a commentary on every genealogy in the Bible or compiled, put together. It's all in one place. So, Nancy, welcome to Disciple Dojo. We're glad to have you. And I want you, the, the, I have to ask the first question, what in the world <laughs> made you want to focus on genealogies of all the types of literature in the Bible? Right, right, right. Well, um, my story was just, I had gone to divinity school at Duke, and I was looking, at the time, I was just sort of uh, making a commitment to read through the Bible. Okay, that's 
to me, one of the best things that you can do. And so that dovetailing with my coursework there, I was looking for a book on genealogies that would help me in my classes, whether, I, you know, Old Testament, New Testament, um, all of that kind of thing. And I could not find one. Now, I could find articles or sort of small books about certain genealogies, like in Genesis, like Table of Nations, that kind of thing. But I could not find one. And um, so I was reading through scripture and I could just see all of these associations. And I um, felt really a call to write this book. And so I think that's what the Lord does for you. The Holy Spirit prompts you to do certain things, but it's it has to be with your own skill set right. and uh, my background in in sciences and the like really helped me write write this book. So mm -hmm. uh, that's kind of my story, uh, how I got into it. They're very nuanced. Um, that what I realize is that they're a key literary genre of the Bible, just like you would say, you know, the historical narratives or the gospels or the epistles or wisdom literature, whatever. It's it's a real, a whole genre that hasn't been explored in a comprehensive way. And so um, I think that readers probably have the same experience that I did, that you cannot remember these names. They just seem like lists and you can't see who's related to who. Why is this important? And so you come away with, why is this in scripture? And can it be understood? And um, I can say from personal testimony and experience, the only way you can do it is if you are doing real-time drafts of these of the ancestors and descendants of certain people. And so when I started reading through scripture, um, I could see that certain part of the genealogies might be explained in Genesis, but then you would not find um, the continuation of that lineage until maybe Samuel. And then you might not see more the terminus in until you got to Chronicles. And so you have to be able to construct them over this canon of Scripture in order to see like the entire thread of of information that they impart. Mm -hmm. And so um, I there's a couple of quotes that I would like to share with your audience one is by uh, Robert Wilson, who was a professor at Yale in 1975. He, he wrote, although the general public tends to regard the Old Testament genealogies as unnecessary parentheses in the biblical text, biblical scholars have always been intrigued by them. This scholarly interest is not a modern phenomenon, but one that has its roots in the biblical world. And that quote tells you that we think differently than the ancients, mm -hmm. uh, ancients did about our 
um, ancestry, and they truly valued them. And then the other quote I wanted to uh, share maybe with your audience that they might like is from Joachim Jeremias, and he wrote this great text uh, using a lot of the rabbinic literature, and uh, he he wrote in 1962 in his book, Jerusalem at the Time of Jesus. He says, it was not only priest who, without exception, had to produce their genealogies before being allowed to take office. Even the simple Israelite knew his ancestors and the tribes to which he belonged. So you can see that we there's sort of a disconnect with how we think in the Western world as individuals and how the ancients regarded these genealogies. They truly treasured them, valued them, archived them, re- put them to memory, kept them in their personal um, records. It's like, this is who I am. This is my identity. Yeah. And uh, oh, it's... It's so different than modern, like, so modern genealogies, I think of in American culture, for example, you have kind of, I've seen two approaches to to genealogy. One is the people that get really interested in Ancestry.com and they search their genealogy, but it's, it's, it's still always like an individual focus. Like who are the individuals in my family who are of note or how did I get to where I am? And so it's like this quest that just branches out from them right now and or the other extreme. And I would fall on this side. I can't name past three generations back. I have no idea. Like, I don't know who my ancestors are past my great, great grandparents. Um, Well, that's pretty good. A lot of people don't get past, you know, parents, grandparents, mm -hmm. great grandparents. It's like three to five generations. So. Our Western mind thinks, and we think very individualistic. Yeah. And you don't um, think of like even, so even the former type of people that were, that get really into genealogy, they still, I, let me see how I can put this. They still think of their family tree as a collection of a bunch of individual people. Whereas in the ancient world, and, and you see this in the Old Testament genealogies in particular, family lines are thought yeah. of collectively and things Correct. passing down yeah. in a way that's different, even from modern genealogy nerds, like even Absolutely. for people that really get into it. Yeah. And I think your book does a great job presenting the different genealogies, explaining. So right at the beginning, and I, I, I've had this for a few months and I've gotten to use it a, a few times. Uh, once when we did a video here on over Christmas on Matthew's genealogy and the women that appear in that and what that may or may not be saying. And then I've, I've looked through it in, in discussions leading up to this episode. One of the thing, well, a couple of things I noticed one, the introduction's very good. You, you lay out why genealogies matter. Uh, you talk about the different characteristics of genealogies, the different types of genealogies. All of the scripture references are in bold print, so people can literally jump right to the passages that you're talking about. It's it's beautifully laid out. And then when you get into the actual commentary part of it, you visually lay out, and I'll put this on screen so people can see, but you visually lay out the genealogies in a way that 
lets readers at a glance see what's happening, see what type of genealogy it is, linear or segmented or a little bit of both. And then there's a commentary section. Uh, mm-hmm. There's a section that talks about the biblical significance. And then there's notes, like little super detailed notes that go real far into it. This is the kind of stuff you would find sprinkled across all of the commentaries out there, but in one place. And yeah. I think that's incredibly important. And and so I want viewers to know what it is that, that Nancy's put together because it really is a phenomenal resource. Do you think your, your background is not in biblical scholarship though? You mentioned no. getting a degree in divinity, but I, what's your... What's your background for folks that don't know? I went to Oklahoma Baptist University. Um, Then I did a master's in plant taxonomy with one of the world's greatest taxonomists. He collected more plants than anyone like in the world. And so I was very privileged to work under him. So I did a a systematic survey, a a plant taxonomic survey of a parish Mm -hmm. in Louisiana. And so, um, of course, this is very detailed. You're looking at real minutia things. But, um, you know, when you're doing plant taxonomy, it's it's just like in zoology. It's, you know, kingdom, phylum, plant, order, family, genus, species, subspecies. And so it's very organized. And um, genealogies are a lot like that. Um, I went ahead and um, my husband was finishing um, a postdoc at Oak Ridge National Labs. So we moved to Tennessee and I had the chance to go back to school. And uh, so I pursued um, my PhD was in cell biology. Mm -hmm. And I studied the ultrastructure of a singular cell, single celled organism. And so I, I had these wonderful, you know, mentors that, they really teach you how to think, how to deal with a lot of material and, and a lot of detailed material. And I would say that's, I just, I like that kind of thing anyway, sort of nerdy. And <laughs> yeah. uh, I don't mind all of that. And so um, I just saw that I could do this kind of work. I could see these associations immediately as I started reading scripture. Mm-hmm. And uh, like I said, I went to Duke Divinity School. After two years, I decided if I go this path, I'm going to end up working, you know, maybe on staff at a church. Thank goodness some people are called to do that and be pastors or be a seminarian. Um, I I had always taught in the church to adults. And so I just I love scripture and I see it as God's inspired word. It has so many, you know, overarching themes, but it has real relevance to just the common person can learn so much because God teaches you that way. And uh, so uh, I started in 2000. And I had notebooks that were kind of like science notebooks. So I had a notebook for Genesis and one for Exodus. There wasn't much genealogical material in Leviticus, but like numbers, you have the censuses, uh, Deuteronomy. And so I would keep these experimental notebooks, if you will. But it was all my handwritten um, 
assessment of who these people were, how they were connected, all the familial associations. And then through it took me till about 2007 to get to First Chronicles. And then you hit this big, oh my gosh. Yeah. So many genealogies there. Yes. And I must say that that scripture verse that says God redeems the time. I was sick for a good part of that year. Mm. And as I was laying there, I felt like, you know, a Watson Crick kind of story. You, I just had that uh, peaceful, in-depth time to really trace and see what was going on. So, that year passed. I got much better. And uh, then I finished uh, Old Testament about 2013. And New Testament, of course, there's not nearly as many genealogies there as in Old. Oh, I would say Old Testament's like 250. Mm-hmm. New Testament is about, it's a little less than that, 20. Mm-hmm. And so I... Um, I finished all of that, but the hardest, of course, was Jesus's genealogy, and that was a real goal. Can I figure out what's going on between Matthew and Luke? I decided um, in about 2016 to go to an ETS meeting, and that was at the advice and encouragement of Dr. Merrill, who was uh, Eugene Merrill was a professor. He is a professor emeritus at Dallas. Theological Seminary. He's a wonderful, wonderful man. And he said, you need to go to ETS. And so that was there that I met some publishers and acquisition editors and started talking to them. And uh, so, you know, it's one thing to do your own thing. It's another thing to really develop a book that is useful to a broad audience. And so since about 2017, um, I started working um, to sort of get the book in polished form. And uh, you had mentioned, uh, as you were holding up the book, every chart is laid out the same way in the book. Mm -hmm. And so there's like um, 288 charts. um, And they all have like a main title. And that's the person that's being discussed Mm -hmm. uh, or persons. And then there's a subtitle for each chart, and it's in two parts. One is you're looking at um, the dating, who, uh, you know, basically who is this in a a chronological period of biblical history, you know. Mm -hmm. And then the second part was no one who's going to believe my work unless I put the scripture verses that I use to develop the chart. And so those are the other thing that are in the subtitle. Mm -hmm. And then beyond that is the family tree chart. It comes in two types. One is a long linear list of names, father, son, or father, heir. Mm-hmm. And it just goes with great depth uh, across multiple generations. And so when you see generations that are like 10 generations or more long, like in tribe of Judah or Luke's genealogy of Jesus, that means they are using written sources. Mm-hmm. 
They're not doing this from memory. Of, you know, even an ancient Israelite might be only able to understand to re recall 10 generations. So they come in these two types, linear or segmented. Segmented is defined as um, a father, or sometimes the mother is also uh, described, and this is their, their children. And um, so there's multiple children, and you trace those lineages of each of the children. Mm -hmm. And then sometimes they'll say, and there's other, quote, sons and daughters this is what you see in the adam and eve genealogy right. yep. so this means that genealogies are selective they don't trace everyone they trace sort of these key characters and i found that they relate to the biblical narrative so when you have um Adam, Eve, and they have Cain and Abel and Seth, that means there's going to be narratives about those people. Mm -hmm. And um, so that's how they're they're laid out. And uh, the nice thing about the book is it goes canonically. So if you can find a book in the Bible, you know, Judges, you can find it in this book because it's laid out Genesis, Genesis through Malachi and then New Testament, um, yeah. you know, Matthew. You can tell that when I hear that your background is in taxonomy, it makes perfect sense. Like it, yeah. it just makes sense that you would produce this, uh, given your skill set and your background. It's kind of cool. You're the second in a row a uh, female author scientist that we've had yeah. here in the dojo. We had Lois Verberg, and she was also a PhD in biology and she turned her love of, of scholarly scientific literature and, and ferreting out footnotes and, and looking at sources into her ministry about the Jewish background of Jesus. And so it's so cool to hear of another gifted thinker that God has brought out using your background in yeah. biology taxonomy which is all about uh, categorizing and organizing and presenting it makes perfect sense that this yeah. falls into your wheelhouse and i think that's amazing because yeah. i'm the opposite i biology was brutal for me i did much better in uh other classes than the ones where i had to classify and categorize because it was so much information to to take in and then try to organize and and it takes a certain type of brain that can present it to people like me in a way that's like that makes sense that makes right. sense and and it's so i love it i love the the whole body of christ like the, the people that Everyone we have here in the dojo has a place yeah so that's Everyone has a place. God can use whatever your background is. You bring, you may have a business background. And for me, I went on and, you know, I held faculty positions at Western Kentucky. I taught biology, mm. botany, cell biology, and um, ran the electron microscope um, imaging center. Then um, I I worked at Texas A&M on research faculty mm -hmm. in the Department of Medical Physiology, and I studied angiogenesis, worked with lots of students. And so I understood all of the academic background. You know, you're right. trying to teach, you're trying to do research, you're trying to write grants, you're... Um, you know, you're a faculty member going to faculty meetings and you 
you're advising students. And so I under I understand all of the academic credentials that you have to have. Um, and I understand that kind of scientific rigor mm -hmm. that you have to bring because, you know, people don't want this to be kind of something that was sort of a qualitative kind of comment. They want to, they want a quantitative mm -hmm. they kind of analysis. And I think that's what I bring is like a scientific rigor because you have to do it over a long period of time. You can't just go, well, I'm going to write this book in a year. Right. It took, it took 20 years mm -hmm. to write. The book. And that is just to get it to a place where it is ready for other people like Dr. Merrill and um, Dr. Kostenberger. We haven't gotten to that, but. Um, well, that let me ask you about them because that was my next question. Uh, Eugene Merrill is the Old Testament contributing author and uh, Andreas Kostenberger, New Testament contributing editor. What mm -hmm. role did they play in bringing this book about? Like uh, how, how were they involved in, okay. in seeing this through? Well, I had done all of the drafts of the chart, turned them into sort of polished word files. Mm -hmm. I went to that ETS meeting in like 2016 and 17, talked to the people at Zondervan Academic. They said, we're really interested in that, but because you are not um, a seminarian yourself, right. <laughs> uh, you will have to have other um, academicians that mm -hmm. come on board. And I had made contact with Dr. Merrill. He had written a commentary on First Chronicles. And I live near Houston. So I drove up mm -hmm. to Dallas and talked to him. And he's a delightful, he's like a gentleman scholar of an erudite in the best mm -hmm. definition of right. a person. And so he was like, oh, this is very interesting. Yes. And uh, so he was interested in helping write the commentary. So I wrote, you know, most of the commentary drafts mm -hmm. and the footnotes. But because he was a contributing author, I mean, he brought, brought a wealth of information because he understands all the original sources, all the Hebrew sources. Mm -hmm. So he could say, well, this is a hypocharistic name. This is, you know, the diminutive form of a name. It's mm -hmm. not Joram, it's Joram. Or he could explain how things get, like, uh, changed by scribes or something over time. Mm -hmm. And so he brought a wealth of, I would say, really uh, theological scholarship because he comes from that background. And then uh, Dr. Andreas Kostenberger, um, he agreed to be the editor for the New Testament charts. And so I had written those commentaries, and uh, but I needed help with like dating, mm -hmm. um, some of the language. Uh, we t he and I talked about a person named Clopas or Cleopas, or how is this actually um, explained in the Greek? And so these people, Merrill and Kostenberger, were a great resource to me. Dr. Merrill and I worked for about three and a half years mm -hmm. on going over those fine-toothed, <laughs> mm -hmm. with a fine-toothed comb, the commentaries 
that showed the biblical and the theological significance of each chart. Uh, he used to say, you know, we are iron sharpening iron. That's how he explained it. Yeah. So I brought things to the table uh, and he brought many, many of things to the table as far as original source material. And uh, so it was a great, it's been a great collaboration. And uh, in the book I wrote in the introduction, it feels like a shared triumph because mm. you you think you're going to do all these things by yourself, but that is not the best way right, in right. God's In his kingdom, you work with others. And yeah. then I had the wonderful editors, uh, in-house editors at Zondervan Academic. It goes through very, very stringent um, editorial review. They send it out. It's all it's all peer-reviewed, very much like science, peer-reviewed. And uh, so what you get is a very great book in, yeah. in my opinion. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. It's not, I want viewers to understand this isn't um, hi, my name is Nancy. I got an idea for a book and I wrote it and I published it. Here it is. Guys, this is this is a monumental academic work that biblical scholars themselves are able to use in their work. Like you've right. you've contributed, you and Dr. Merrill and Dr. Kossenberger have put together a resource that students of the Bible and teachers of students of the Bible yeah. collectively together can use as they're doing their research. And it is, it's Zondervan academic. It's not some fly by night publisher. Like this is peer reviewed, like high level scholarship. Uh, it's, it's a solid academic resource, but that being said, you know, cause a lot of disciple dojo viewers are interested in academic resources, but a lot don't have academic training. You don't need to know Greek or Hebrew to, to use it. Yeah, this is any lay reader, anybody who's, if you're teaching a Sunday school class, if you're leading a small group, if you're just interested in the backgrounds, why is so much of the Bible genealogy? Why does it matter? Well, this is a resource that would kind of make the case for that. And so I just, I want viewers to know about it. I don't want people to think um, that this is just a pet project. Right. That, no. You know, because there's a lot of that. Let's be honest. There's a lot of crazy stuff out there about people that dig into the Bible and they don't have a biblical scholar background. And so they get fascinated, whether it's Bible code nonsense, whether it's like secret meanings of Hebrew names, what all of this stuff. And then they just put it out there and it's nonsense. But yeah. this is the opposite of that. This is a collaborative effort by somebody who is in the field of taxonomy and biology and science and rigor and study, and then theological biblical scholars coming alongside. And I love it. I love how the pieces fit together. Um, and I think- I would just say, if you are a person that um, you, you're you reading the Bible and you come across a name that you, it's like, who is this person? I can barely pronounce the name and, uh, there is an 80-page uh, subject and scripture index at mm -hmm. the back of this book. So if you have a name, you can just look up that name alphabetically, or uh, you can go to a certain air, you know, part of scripture, like right. some scripture Job index, yeah. 1, 3 or something. I'm not saying that that's where <laughs> you should be, but, but I'm just saying you can look up any scripture, any person's name yeah I'm, i was showing it on camera while you're talking like this it's 
this much of it. This this is all of the indices she's talking about. And it is very easy, very easy to go straight to any name of any person and see what's up. And the cool thing is you're, you're, you go there and it puts them in their setting. It puts them in their genealogical, their historical, their literary setting. So these aren't just random names that are thrown out. They, they, you can see the structure, which I love. Um, let's, let's talk about, I want to ask you, which genealogies did you find when you were doing your research, when you were putting all this together, which are the one in each Testament that really just either stuck out to you, fascinated you, puzzled you? What, <laughs> all of the above. <laughs> give us, give us a top one. Maybe you spent the most time wrestling with or, or, right. or, or were just blown away by something you found. Okay. Well, what I, what I, uh, one of the major goals I told, I said was I wanted to understand Jesus's, ancestry his heritage and so you have these um this sec um mostly it's a linear genealogy in matthew mm -hmm. and then you have a different set of names in the long linear genealogy of luke and so the question for you know thousands of years really hundreds of years at least is can this be harmonized? Can how do you how do you figure this out? And so one of the charts that I did for Old Testament that um, kind of incorporates the material for both Matthew and Luke was the first Chronicles three chart on these two people named the genealogy of Sheltiel and Zerubbabel. And the double line of the Messiah that goes through King David, mm -hmm. um, his sons, Solomon and Nathan, that chart took hundreds of hours to analyze and figure out. But what I did is I looked at the names that were common between Matthew and Luke's genealogy. Mm -hmm. And I could see that there was these four names, David, Sheltiel, Zerubbabel, and basically Jesus's earthly father. So you know that, or most of you probably know, Matthew does an ascending genealogy. He starts with Abraham. 14 generations later, he talks about um, Sheltiel and Zerubbabel, and he talks about David, and then um, he talks about, um, then ends with Joseph. So that genealogy is kind of laid out with 14 generations, 14 generations, and 14 generations. Yep. And um, so because Matthew, if you all have seen the chosen mm. <laughs> uh, portions of it, they show him as a real kind of odd person. I would say this is probably true. <laughs> he was definitely a scribe. He was a recorder. He's a numbers person. Mm -hmm. He's a tax collector. Mm -hmm. And so he he puts it in 14, 14, 14 generations, and he leaves out some of the kings of Israel. Right. And so what Matthew is doing um, he traces the kingly line through David Solomon. 
and all the kings of Judah. Mm-hmm. And on the other hand, when you look at Luke's genealogy, he goes from David to Nathan. Nathan is and Solomon are two of the four living sons of David and Bathsheba. This is not what you would expect from that Old Testament, uh, you know, first Samuel kind of story. Bathsheba, she is the ancestress of this double line. And so Matthew is tracing the kingly line and and Luke is tracing the non-kingly line through Nathan. And so on page 189, you, you can chart those side by side. And what we know is that Solomon and Nathan were, they were brothers. They were biological brothers. When you get down to the time of the exile, you have a king, Jehoiakim, that goes into Babylonian exile in 586 when Nebuchadnezzar comes. And sort of the terminus-like figure in Luke is that you have this person named Neri. And this is where you get the crossover. I read this very important, I thought it was an illuminating book. It was called The Literary Structure of Old Testament by David Dorsey. And he looks and he describes what's called the chiastic literary structure. And so this is the X. At the top is David, but then you have this crossover of these two lines, the kingly line and the non-kingly line crossover, and that is in the person of Sheltiel and Zerubbabel. And then it splits again, and then you end up with Joseph. And if you understand literary structure, then you can see uh, how this chiastic structure is is working. So King David, of course, was um, the second king over the united monarchy. He is the successor to Saul. Each of the three kings, Saul, David, and Solomon, his son, reign for um, 40 years. They come to the throne at age 30. This is when you're sort of uh, of legal age to be a uh, priest Mm -hmm. or a Levite, and in this case, a king. And so uh, we see that David's ancestry goes back to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the tribe of Judah. It continues on, and you get to um, a person named Amenadab, and he has two uh, two children. One is Elisheba. So um, you may not be familiar with that name, but she marries the first priest, which is Aaron. And so you think of the Aaronic priesthood as being, oh, those are just all Levites. But this shows you that she was from the tribe of Judah. So all high priests, all Levites, are coming from this dual heritage. Um, But her brother is Nashon, and he was a leader during the wilderness years for the tribe of Judah, and his son was Salmon. And um, you don't hear about him until you get to Matthew's genealogy, but you hear about his wife, Mm -hmm. Rahab, the harlot of Jericho. 
And, uh, of course, this is when the children of Israel come into the promised land. And she runs an inn, and uh, she's called a prostitute. Uh, She's not a cultic prostitute. She's a secular prostitute. And it turns out that she is regarded as a very righteous person because she gave um, shelter to the spies that that Joshua had sent out, and she protects them. And secondly, she believes in the God of Israel. And so what's remarkable is that you can have this very tainted past, but you can have a very righteous, godly future. Mm -hmm. And this is, she's one of the major ancestresses of the Messiah. And that's what Matthew talked about. And then she marries this spy, Salmon, and they have a son named Boaz. And Boaz, as you know, is in the story of Ruth. Ruth is a Moabitess, and the Moabites were excluded from worshiping because they come from that incestuous relationship with Lot and his daughters, the Ammonites and the Moabites. So, I mean, that's like kind of anathema. But Boaz sees her. She's faithful to her mother-in-law, Naomi, and she says, I'll go where you go and your God will be my God. Those are traditional wedding vows. And it's from this wonderful Moabite named uh, Ruth. And Boaz acts as the kinsman redeemer for that family. And they have a son named Obed. Obed has a son named Jesse. And Jesse has a son named David. And David is uh, in one place in Samuel, it says there's eight sons of, of Jesse. The chronicler says there's seven. It's probably a nuanced. This is one of those cases where are there seven? Are there eight? Um, and scholars will debate this, but I went with the chronicler's uh, explanation. And so David is the youngest. And uh, what is very strange is that he has two half-sisters. Well, all of us know that when you have a half-sister or half-brother, that in this case, they shared the same mother but not the same father. These half-sisters, their father is identified as a man named Nehash, which means serpent. Mm -hmm. And so this means Jesse is married to two different women. One is the mother of David and his brothers, and the other wife is probably this widow of Nahash. Okay, that's not what you expect, or I didn't expect that. Um, And it goes on, and this explains some of the children of David. He has like eight wives and um, various concubines, and you end with some of the children of David. But it does show that his wife, uh, Bathsheba, is going to, it's going to be Through her that you get the double line of the Messiah that I mentioned in the First Chronicles 3 chart. And looking back, you know, just with these ones we've mentioned, Ruth, her first husband is Malon. He dies. And then she marries Boaz. Okay. 
In the case of Bathsheba, her first husband is Uriah the Hittite. David has him murdered after he takes Bathsheba, but he murders Uriah. Okay, so I found in the ancestry of the Messiah, there are 10 places where one man is in succession married to two different women. And this is all explained in that First Chronicles 3 chart and in uh, the chart in Matthew and Luke. So this is not what I expected. Probably this is not what your audience expects. And so you get this coming together of Gentiles, like Rahab was obviously a Canaanite, and uh, Ruth is a Moabite. Bathsheba was a Judahite. But you have this coming together of Gentiles and Jews. And I think this is what Luke is trying to stress, is that Jesus is the Son of man, the Son of God. So Jesus was for the Jews, but he's also for the Gentiles. And people will say, well, this might be just a New Testament phenomenon. It is not. You see it even with the family of Abraham. Those that were brought into the family of faith were oftentimes what they call resident aliens or foreigners, but they were brought into Abraham's family, circumcised. And so, uh, of course, the New Testament equivalent of circumcision is baptism. So with belief and baptism, you have the coming together of Gentiles and Jews into this remarkable covenant family of faith. And uh, it calls uh, Abraham is um, the father of us all because he believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. So, yeah, right? it's it's a, it's an ongoing theme in the Old Testament that most people don't recognize is the inclusion of Gentiles from, you know, yeah. people like Caleb all the way, you know, Rahab, Ruth. I mean, these are not Israelites native born, or at least their family line isn't, but they are gra grafted in, dare we say, grafted. in the right. Old Testament. And so in the New Testament, when you see Gentiles through the Spirit coming to faith and being talked about as if, like Paul says, if you are in Christ, then you are Abraham's seed, heirs to the exactly. promise, it's right. not really new. It's just being rediscovered because people haven't done the homework of digging through these genealogies and realizing, oh, Caleb was a Kenizzite. What's a Kenizzite? Oh, they're not an Israelite. Huh, that's interesting. And yet he inherits land in Judah. Yeah. In fact, his daughter, who was a, um, the daughter of one of his concubines, people may not be familiar with him, but he was the leader of the tribe of Judah when they come into the promised land. He and Joshua were the only kind of old guys that lived through the wilderness years. Yeah. And Caleb is, like you said, he's a Kenizzite. He's not an Israelite, but he marries into the tribe of Judah. And so one of his daughters, uh, you may remember the story of Aksa. She marries the first judge of Israel. His name was Othniel. And so the father, Caleb, nice guy that he is, says, well, I'll give this daughter of mine to the person that's the victor. And I think it was of um, 
the city of Ai. And so Othniel wins her, if you will, and and he gives them this area of land that's very, very kind of desolate, dry. And she says, go to my father and ask him for uh, live springs of water. Basically, I don't want to be a Bedouin (laughs) moving all the time. Mm -hmm. And he, this great victor of this military battle, he is scared to ask the dad. And so she takes on sort of this, this persona of a firstborn son. She goes to her father, Caleb the Kenizzite, and says, uh, give us live springs. And it turns out, it's this remarkable story. They inherit the area down uh, in Hebron, which is the city of the patriarchs. That's where everyone's going to be buried at her prompting this wonderful city in Judah. And these are the kind of nuanced things that to me are remarkable. Mm -hmm. Remarkable. Yeah, but they're not on the surface. And that's the point. You have to dig, you have to sift, you have to read carefully. Um, now you mentioned briefly that there are some, you said, you know, the, there's debate among scholars, whether it's seven or eight sons and you made your choice to go with this one rather than this one. And, and that's an example in the book on, um, the introduction page 22, you said Mm -hmm. certain enigmatic genealogies are shrouded in complexity and cannot always be resolved with certainty. Thus scholars may approach the problems differently. And that was one example that you gave. What do you do when putting a book together like this, when you come to one of those, what, how do you present that to people that doesn't get the, the problem is people don't like complexity, especially people in churches. They don't like complexity because they like a preacher who will stand up and bang the Bible and say, that it is the word of God. I stand on this, you know, and any ambiguity starts to make people uncomfortable. But as soon as you've even dipped a toe in biblical scholarship, you realize, oh, there's a lot more ambiguity than I was taught growing up. So how do you embrace that or handle that ambiguity without being like, well, this isn't reliable. I can't, I just can't trust it. I can't believe this, right? So I feel like you always have to start with scripture and sometimes you're in a certain book, but you have to know if that is discussed any other place. And so you have to go and let scripture sort of interpret scripture. That, that's always a great um, biblical interpretation Um guide. Um, You have to look at commentaries and look at a breadth of them. It's very imperative that you know the lineages. If you don't, you'll see in one place, and it can even be in the same chapter of Chronicles. In one place, it says, this is the this is the name of the person. In another place, it will say this this is the son of the person. And you're like, what am I to do with that? Some people would just come up with all kinds of extravagant, extrapolated kinds of explanations. But if you have the long lineages and you know the ancestors and the descendants, you can say, well, that person is the same. They're just called by two different names. And this is very common. And uh, so 
um, it's imperative that you know the lineages. The other thing you often have to be aware of is what's called literary telescoping. So with a telescope, um, or a, let's say it's a pointer, you can stretch it out in full length, or you can move it the different notches and have it very closed. Okay, so in Matthew's genealogy, he's he's giving you uh, 40 ancestors of Jesus. So he's got his telescope uh, kind of out, but it's not all the way out because he has left out four kings. They're well documented in Old Testament. And so you have to consult scripture, other commentators. You have to know these lineages. And I I see this is where it's very, very important. Mm -hmm. Another thing that was extremely common in the ancient day was to call your grandson Give him the same name as the grandfather. And this is true for Terah, who is Abraham's father. His grandfather is named Terah. And so people can get confused. This is called haponymy. Mm -hmm. And um, it's, it's a common occurrence. And so, you know, people might get it wrong because they're not aware of that principle. Mm -hmm. uh, Peter Williams out of Tyndale talks about the use of disambiguation of names. That's, a, that's very important. Sometimes you'll say Mary of Magdala, Mary Magdala, or you'll say uh, Obed-Edom, the Gittite. So they're telling you what their family is, what their hometown is, what their clan name is. Sometimes they'll... Um, They'll say something like Mary, wife of Clopas, because there's lots of Mary. Mary, the mother of James. Sometimes Mary is the mother of James and Joseph. Well, that also happens to be the name of Jesus's half-brothers. So you get confused by the Marys. So sometimes you disambiguate the person by knowing the lineage and sometimes by these little attached epithets. You know, it might be King David, but not that there's other Davids, but or not that there's other. There's Abraham, and then there's Abram. So, uh, Sarai and Sarah, and those kinds of things that help you distinguish when they're the same, when they're a different person. And so, uh, yeah, it's they're problems and sometimes they're not resolved. You have to go with someone. Yeah. Uh, it's different than a, a modern concepts where we have first name, last name, or if you have the same right. name as a family, it's, you know, junior, the, the third, yeah. the fourth. Right, the third, the fourth. And they don't, they, they never did that. And so that can lead to the confusion, like, which Lamech is this? You know, because right. there's a couple of them or like Mary, Jesus. I mean, those are super common names, mm -hmm. uh, you know, Yeshua, Miriam in first century Judaism. Those were incredibly common names right. and just as common as some of the biblical names are today. You know, like John uh, is oh. just as common today. Well, it was just as common back then, too. It was a very common name. And so ferreting it out. And I think a lot of people don't realize how much other work, like you talk about the disambiguation, using these different criteria, 
um, and, and surveying even even things like burial sites or ossuaries or th- yeah. I know uh, Richard Baucom has done a lot of work in his Jesus and the Eyewitnesses on the names of in his case he just focused on first century concepts but how much you're able to identify from the percentages of graves that have been found and names that have been, you know, you can say, Oh, this is a common name. This was an uncommon name. This is a form of this name. Like you mentioned, we have that. Simon, like Simon is one of the most popular male names Mm -hmm. and Mary, the most popular female names. And uh, so the the authors, biblical authors, are sometimes helping you right. by attaching these other familial kinship uh, relationships yeah. to the name, and that that helps you out. And if you know the lineages, you can tease apart. And I and I do say in the book, if if I have to go with a, a certain interpretation, but there could be another interpretation, I put that in those footnotes. Right. So that's why in the introduction, I point the reader to the fine print. I think mm-hmm. the footnotes are involved, eight point font or something. So <laughs> It's there. Yep. You can you can ferret it out if you're in. Well, and you should. That's that's what I want to convey to viewers is biblical scholarship. You you hear a lot of lazy reporting of what scholars believe sometimes into popular consciousness. So I mean, I hear all the time. Well, scholars believe, or well, scholars maintain, and I'm like, okay, no, they don't. I have the articles that they were you're talking about, and. Some scholars have made an argument for what you're saying, but there are scholars who disagree. And so it's very important to do exactly what Nancy just said. Look at the footnotes, go back to the primary sources, see what the arguments are instead of just, well, that's what scholars believe. So I guess I have to believe it because sometimes, I mean, a lot of times scholars are wrong and other scholars tell them, and that's the whole purpose of peer review is to be able to challenge, if you put something out there, you have to be able to defend it against the most rigorous challenges that people who are educated in the field and, and you know, your peers can make. And that's a good thing. That's something that you it know, is a good thing. evangelicals should never shy away from that. It should be, it should embrace that. And because it, it helps us, it, there are things that can be cleared up for people that are problems that don't need to be. Uh, For instance, I think that people get hung up on the, like the age of the earth and, and how to read Genesis, how literal, non-literal, whatever. But a big chunk of that age of the earth that Bishop James Usher popularized was based on just counting up and doing calculations with genealogies that didn't take into account the telescoping nature or that that didn't completely take into account the fact that you could skip generations or that there's some ambiguity and they treated genealogies that they used genealogies for something that genealogies were never intended literarily to be used for, which is to arrive at the creation date of 9.30 a.m., 4.04 B.C., whatever. 4004 BC, but the genealogies instead, and and you talk about this in the opening of your book, 
Um, you say on uh, page 21 of your intro, you say to understand the genealogies is to reveal the big picture of how God worked through his covenant family to bring about the line of Messiah and salvation for his people. And, and that's the thrust of all of these genealogies. And that's the way that they, they don't detract from the narrative. They, they're the structure. They, they hold the narrative up and anchor it into this world in a way that very few other ancient religious texts do. You know, you read the Hindu, Hindu tales, they, they're always uh, like the Bhagavad Gita and others. They're not anchored in history. They, they take place or like the Greek gods and, and they take place in this long lost ancient time. Right. Yeah. And scripture is rooted, or at least it's presenting itself as rooted in history and, and in human history through traceable, tangible, actual people, that's sort of, that, that's they're that scripture apart. Fables. They're not mythologies. And there's a something about a term, I think it's in Timothy, it says endless genealogies. This is where some of the people in New Testament days are trying to make themselves go back to a certain revered ancestor. It's like right. we would say, well, I'm related to someone who came over on the Mayflower. Right, right, right. You know, they, there is this, and so they're creating these um, speculative kinds of genealogies. And so there, it's not, uh, it's not in any way imputing what scripture is dotted throughout with these genealogies. In fact, I I think of them almost like, like if you had a picture and you have a picture frame, the narrative is the picture, but what's supporting it is these, these structural components. It's right. these lineages, it's these people. It's, um, they, they are telling you something about the social network the um, cultural, political, um, geographical, because sometimes genealogies are giving you a, a personal name, but it turns into almost like a place name as well. So they can be like these pointers to geographic cities within the tribe of Judah or tribe of Benjamin. Uh, and they're telling you something about a ruler, for instance, in when they come back as Israel uh, from exile, as the to settle in the promised land, they they tell you, oh well, this person is the ruler of Jerusalem, and he actually was a Benjamite, not a Judahite. Who would have thought that? And uh, so it tells you about something socially that's mm -hmm. going on, politically what's going on. And uh, so they have all of these props, if you will, for understanding the biblical narratives. And they're unexpected. That's the the interesting thing. We, we touched on this in the video we did over Christmas, where I first mentioned your book in Jesus' genealogy, but it applies uh, to so many others is you don't if you're if you were going to create one of those lofty endless genealogies that put your family in the best light and made you you know the true one who would be savior of the world you don't stick four women three of whom at least have uh, reputations that are let's say questionable 
you don't put those in the genealogy. The fact that Matthew did in and of itself speaks to the the realness of it, one, and two is the redemptive aspect of it that yeah. you mentioned earlier, that that everybody's everybody's got skeletons in their family closet. And scripture doesn't shy away from that. It doesn't hide it. It doesn't whitewash. Uh, you you see everyone's lineage, warts and all, including the savior of the world. Some Jesus. of these were questionable women. But what I find is even with these five, and Matthew talks about five women, Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and Mary. Okay, those are the five. And so there's all this aura of, oh, this is a person that's betrothed to Joseph. She should not be pregnant. She, But she says, let this be to me. You know, she willingly knows the kind of chatter that's going to be in Nazareth when she turns up pregnant. But each of these women that I mentioned, they are all... Um, they're all vindicated. Yes, exactly. So we think of them, oh, these are bad women. Mm-mm. But each is vindicated. Judah says, uh, uh, you, to Tamar, you have been more righteous than I have because he did not want to give him by leveret marriage. She was due the she was married to Ur and Onan. They both died because they are wicked and God kills them. And he's she is due to have Sheila. And, and Judah doesn't want to give him to her. But by his own words, she's vindicated. And the other women, you know, Rahab and Bathsheba and Ruth, all of these women are, and I put this in the Matthew chart, where they are addressed in the footnotes. Each person is, um, they're really righteous women. They do these great things in spite of the culture, cultural uh, pressures mm. that they're under. Yeah. And uh, so, so we may think of them, you know, just on first glance, just like the first century audience is hearing with Matthew's audience. They're expecting Messiah, but they're expecting this absolutely pure line. And he writes something completely different that includes Gentiles. Mm-hmm. This is what Luke does. He includes Gentiles. And, uh, you know, some of those kings weren't too too great either in the kingly line. Oh, you know, yeah. I'm good. I'm bad. It's, it's, yeah, it's like too good right? and the rest bad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's the, that's, that's what's so cool is. And, and we've talked about this here when I had Carolyn Custis James on and we talked about uh-huh. the gospel of Ruth oh, and uh, the story in her book, Maelstrom, where she talks about um, the, the pictures of manhood in scripture. And Judah is one of the key figures for her in that incident with, um, with Tamar that the the reputation that the women had was the typical reputation that that gossipy people or people looking on would assume but when you look at the text just like you said yeah. those women are put forth as just another way of god turning things on its head and right. saying oh you think i can't work with 
what society may cast off or what society may turn their nose at, let me show you. I'm actually going to do it. And I'm going to do it through the tribe of Judah, who's going to give rise to the coming King David, who will then bring forth the Messiah. You can't you can't outmaneuver God's sovereign purposes through either failure and sin, like a lot of the kings tried as hard to do, or through the reputation that you may have through no fault of your own. God's going to do what he's going to do to bring about his glory in the end through all of that. And when you look back and you see it, you're like, wow, I never would have been able to connect the dot from this to this in in purely human machinations, but God is able to tie that thread. And it's just, it's, it's hard to see it without, it's, it's hard to see the forest until you've actually looked at some of the trees. And sometimes people get lost looking at the trees and they miss the forest and then vice versa. So I like that your book does that. It gives people the ability to get in and look at the trees, look at individual, you know, ask these thorny questions. A lot of the genealogies end up in discussions of contradictions in the Bible. If you look at websites where there's like Bible contradictions, there's 900 of them. A lot of them will be, well, this says it's the son of so-and-so, but this says the son of so-and-so, ha, right. contradiction. And, it does. Yeah. and right. you, that's why your book, I think, is helpful, not just on a basis of apologetics, like this will make Christians go, ha, that's, I don't have to worry about that. But in a deeper sense of no, it's showing how those are misreadings of the passage. And even some of the defenses and the harmonizations that Christians do sometimes can be based on misreadings, not taking into account the nature of genealogies, what they were, what they weren't, and and seeing what they're intended to be. So I... I did try to always document the line of the Messiah through all the Old Testament. So there's that sort of scarlet thread mm -hmm. of redemption. So in every chart uh, where it does link to the Messiah, I always put that in there. Uh, you don't have to kind of wait to New Testament to get that information. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. But there's a big meta narrative that's going on, mm -hmm. you know, just it's the covenant people of God and in relationship to um, God and worshiping and uh, uh, yeah. So, well, you say that we'll end with this, this last quote I want to ask you about is okay. um, on 22, 23 and 24 of the intro. You say that you're talking about the, the kind of a wordplay of God or, or the images of genealogies, two images. One is a house and one is a living tree or living tree of life. And, and the conclusion to that discussion, you say, thus, the ultimate covenant family of God transcends bloodline, ethnicity, gender, and national, religious, and cultural backgrounds. Faith in Christ becomes the final arbiter for identity, inclusion, and security in the kingdom of God, which is exactly what Paul tells the Galatians and the Ephesians um, and argues for in Romans 11 as well. It's it's. It's there in the Old Testament when when the prophets speak of the day when Gentiles will actually be brought into the people of God, worshiping Yahweh alongside of Israel, and um, even speaks of their enemies like Egypt and Assyria are called my people, my handiwork. So they're, all throughout Scripture, that's the promise. But the question then, and, and maybe you can end with this, is if our family tree, 
no doesn't determine our standing before God, then people might walk away thinking, well, then why does any genealogy matter? If it's all about faith, why spend 20 years researching genealogies when I can just say, well, I believe in Jesus, so I'm in. Yeah, right. Um, it's important because it was important to put in the canon. It's important because this God is going to work through a certain line, that scarlet thread, to bring about Christ. Okay? But we're going to have all these people along the way. God identifies himself as, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. I'm not the God of the dead. I'm the God of the living. And so this is why I use this imagery, because people go, well, genealogies, what is that? I do it in two ways. It's a house that's being built. Remember when you were in Sunday school as a kid, it was like, here's the church and here's the steeple. <laughs> open open the, the doors door, to see all the people. All the people. <laughs> okay, that is very theological. Right. It's a house, but it's not just a tent tabernacle in the wilderness or Solomon's temple or a second temple or Herod's temple. You see this general progression. It's it's a place of worship where God meets his family in mercy. It's on that mercy seat in the Holy of Holies. He meets us in mercy. He provides Christ who is going to redeem us. And so by the time you get to New Testament, it's not a physical house. It's even in Old Testament, it says, you know, like Joshua will say, choose this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, it's we will serve the Lord. And it's so the house represents people. It's not just this physical place. In in New Testament, you see this movement in Hebrew, it's the word bait goes to the Greek naos. It's going to be a spiritual house. Don't you know that you yourselves are the temple of the Holy Spirit? And that you see this progression of where it's a spiritual priesthood. We are to offer ourselves as a living sacrifice to God. So we become the place where God dwells in us. And the other metaphor I used was this this tree, like the biggest tree in the ancient world in that area was the cedar of Lebanon. And it's like you are planted beside the waters. You've placed this, you've established this. There was this wild olive shoot Christ was the, the from the stump of Jesse. He's the netzer that comes out. So that house is, is cut off, and there's this netzer. That's what they made the, the scepter from, was this real straight growth that came from the stump of the olive tree. And so that points to Messiah. And that means we are grafted into this tree. And so the tree is a living, dynamic, growing entity. We are a community of believers planted beside the waters and all grow 
and have life through, you know, the vine. You know, if you're separate from me, you are, you're cut off. There's no life in you. But as long as we're part of that living entity that God describes himself that way. And so we come to the faith of Abraham as believers. We're brought in, no matter if we're Gentile, if we have sin in our past, we have this ability to be um, renewed. And the years that the locust ate, you know, they're gone. And God can restore that, just like you're describing. And uh, it's it's a beautiful picture in uh in Revelation, where it's a tree of life now that has the waters, and we're all living because God, uh, the covenant promises to Abraham and to David were that I will establish this kingdom forever. And so there's this eternality about our existence. We don't die with death. Our, we're, we, we become part of that growing entity uh, that that God has always intended. And it, it's a lovely picture of our past, our present, and our future. Yeah, yeah I love it. You're, we, are, we are grafted in to a family tree. Yes. <laughs> and so knowing that family tree, that's part of what Jew or Gentile, those who are in the Messiah are in are Abraham's seed and heirs right. according to the promise. So knowing genealogies is is knowing our family, knowing our background and knowing the purpose of our heavenly father, what he's doing at the like you said what at the meta narrative level. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. this shows who he is, not just who we are, the covenant people, but that it shows his identity. That's I think that's one of the major points is that who we are as a covenant people that yeah but uh the god that we serve so it's it's yeah. a lovely lovely it really uh, is thank you so much for uh yeah, chatting with you. us this afternoon it okay. was great i folks i want to again i want to recommend nancy's book all the genealogies of the bible check it out this is a valuable resource and if you're a serious student of scripture it should be on your shelf um, it will clear up a lot of things that take a lot of work to ferret out. Well, she's done that work. So why not take advantage of it? Um, so anyway, Nancy, thank you so much for stopping in here at the dojo is great to chat with My you. Pleasure. We, uh, we'll see you in the future and, and keep us posted on anything else that you have coming down the pipe. Okay. I will. Thank you so much. All right. Take care. I hope you enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. Check out Nancy's book. I'll put a link in the video description below. This really is a phenomenal resource. I want to thank Zondervan Academic for sending me this copy to review. And I want to thank Nancy for coming on and talking about it. Hopefully this discussion has inspired you to maybe not skip over those lists of names next time you come across them in your Bible reading. That's all for now. Stay tuned here at Disciple Dojo for all kinds of cool Bible nerdy stuff in the coming days, weeks, and months. Subscribe if you haven't already, and as always, keep training.